Welcome to the History of the Americans podcast, episode 142. I'm your host, Jack Henneman, and I'm recording this episode on February 11th, 2024. Happy Mardi Gras, everybody, in New Orleans. We're telling the history of the lands now encompassed by the United States from the beginning without intentional presentism. Also, if you're new to the podcast, this episode is a sidebar, which is our term for an episode that's off the sequential timeline of the podcast. Long-standing and attentive listeners no doubt will roll their eyes when they see the title of this episode. Is there anything Jack won't do to mention Sir Francis Drake? Well, probably. But when confronted with a story that involves both Iowa, the state I grew up in, and Francis Drake, I'm powerless to ignore it. This is that story. In 1930, the great English economist John Maynard Keynes wrote a fascinating little essay called The Economic Possibilities of Our Grandchildren, which is generally worth your time. Link in the show notes, etc. He discusses the astonishing economic growth that had prevailed in Great Britain since the mid-16th century and the impact of that growth over the hundred years still to come after 1930. Some of his observations were remarkable, and others are perhaps interesting as a reflection of his notions of a just society, none of which are important to this episode. Keynes did, however, include a couple of paragraphs that long-standing and attentive listeners, at least, will appreciate. Quote, The modern age opened, I think, with the accumulation of capital, which began in the 16th century. I believe, for reasons with which I must not encumber the present argument, that this was initially due to the rise of prices and the profits to which that led, which resulted from the treasure of gold and silver which Spain brought from the new world into the old. From that time until today, the power of accumulation by compound interest, which seems to have been sleeping for many generations, was reborn and renewed its strength. And the power of compound interest over 200 years is such as to stagger the imagination. Let me give the illustration of this in a sum which I have worked out. The value of Great Britain's foreign investments today is estimated at about 4 billion pounds. This yields us an income at the rate of about 6.5%. Half of this we bring home and enjoy. The other half, namely 3.25%, we leave to accumulate abroad at compound interest. Something of this sort has now been going on for about 250 years. For I trace the beginnings of British foreign investment to the treasure which Drake stole from Spain in 1580. And that year, he returned to England bringing with him the prodigious spoils of the Golden Hind. Queen Elizabeth was a considerable shareholder in the syndicate which had financed the expedition. Out of her share, she paid off the whole of England's foreign debt, balanced her budget, and found herself with about 40,000 pounds in hand. This she invested in the Levant Company, which prospered. Out of the profits of the Levant Company, the East India Company was founded, and the profits of this great enterprise were the foundation of England's subsequent foreign investment. 
Now, it happens that 40,000 pounds accumulating at 3% compound interest approximately corresponds to the actual volume of England's foreign investment at various dates and would actually amount today to the total of 4 billion pounds, which I've already quoted as being what our foreign investments now are. Thus, every pound which Drake brought home in 1580 has now become 100,000 pounds. Such is the power of compound interest. Back to me. In writing these words, Keynes unwittingly boosted the credibility of one of the most astonishing cons in a period with a lot of cons. Now to Richard Rayner, who in 2002 published a piece in The New Yorker called The Admiral and the Con Man, quote, In the 1920s, things were easy for the con man. The economy was in an unprecedented boom, and the old rules for acquiring wealth did not apply. The writer, Alva Johnston, described how investors had to be driven away with clubs during the Florida land rush precisely because there were so many verifiable tales of instant wealth attained and kept. Four million dollars picked up by a hot dog seller, an 11-year-old who made $100,000, and so on. In Florida in 1925, you could invest in what the speculator thought was a con, a fraud, a scam, an out-and-out, an inexcusable hustle, and still make money. Schemes blossom like confetti on Lindbergh's parade. Chicago swindlers sold shares in the League of Nations. Charles Ponzi drew in as much as $200,000 a day through the simple expedient of borrowing from his present investors to pay the past ones. Hundreds of itinerant Russian immigrants invested a half million dollars in a fictitious gold and platinum mine on the Hudson River. Investors purchased uninspected wetland that turned out to be under the Mississippi, property advertised as already having running water. In the Midwest, farmers and small businessmen found themselves with more spare cash than they'd ever had. To them, Wall Street looked like a big city operation, tricky and rigged. Back to me. It was against this cultural backdrop that an Iowa man named Oscar Hartzell promoted the supposed recovery of the estate of Sir Francis Drake in one of the most far-reaching cons of that age. In our day, unclaimed asset scams take the form of email or text phishing that tries to extract personal financial information from the potential mark, usually with some goofy story attached. The exiled Nigerian prince scam, which sought the mark's financial help to extract millions of dollars stranded in an overseas bank account, became so commonplace that it's still the subject of stand-up comedy bits. These are all just updated versions of the old lost will estate scam, which flourished in the Roaring Twenties. In that version, the con man tells the tale of a vast fortune that has remained undispersed or ended up in the wrong hands. And if only the mark contributes money to help pay for the necessary investigation and lawsuit, he or she will receive many times their investment when the estate is recovered. 
Oliver Hartzell was perhaps the most astonishing practitioner of this scam. It made him wealthy and eventually drove him insane. Along the way, he ensnared tens of thousands of, frankly, trusting suckers, mostly in Iowa and Minnesota, out of millions of dollars, back when a million dollars was a lot of money. Longstanding and attentive listeners know that in 1595, then in his mid-50s, Sir Francis Drake and his cousin Sir John Hawkins, with whom he had sailed almost 30 years before in the mission that ended in the terrible battle at San Juan de Ulua, went on what turned out to be their last adventure. Hawkins and Drake died within days of each other in January 1596. Drake was buried at sea off the coast of Panama in a lead coffin, which has never been recovered. Drake had accumulated a lot of money over his long career as a pirate and then privateer and bought a large estate in the West Country near Plymouth. He had married, been widowed, and married again, but was not known to have any children and certainly no legitimate heirs. Was Drake shooting blanks, or was he gay, or were his wives infertile? Nobody knows. The upshot was that his widow and one of his surviving brothers inherited his considerable estate after word got back to England that Sir Francis had died at sea. Of course, Drake was one of the most famous Englishmen of his age, and it would be natural for rumors to circulate about him in both life and afterlife. It's not hard to imagine what that scuttlebutt might have been. As a pirate, Drake had buried treasure. Remember the 1573 raid on the Spanish mule train crossing Panama? So perhaps some of his fortune was buried somewhere. How was it possible he had no children? Maybe there is one waiting in the wings with a superior claim to his fortune. And so on. The persistence of alleged questions about the Drake estate made it fodder for scam artists. As early as 1892, Robert Todd Lincoln, ambassador to Great Britain and son of Abraham, issued a statement warning potential investors to avoid people claiming to represent the estate of Sir Francis Drake. Now back to Rayner, quote, by 1900, Drake promoters were appearing in the Midwest, at first calling on only those named Drake, but gradually widening the offer. The most successful of them was a woman named Sudi Whitaker, a slender, dark-haired widow in her mid-thirties. Her story was that the rightful heir to the Drake fortune had immigrated to America in the 18th century, and the line of descent could be traced to a George Drake of... Rashport, Missouri, who, as it happened, was a cousin of hers. Whitaker had an impressive document entitled Genealogical Report on the Claim to the Drake Estates prepared by a London genealogist named Rundle U. Upham. George Drake had given her power of attorney to establish his claim to the fortune, she said, and she was prepared to sell a limited number of shares of the estate or subcontracts to cover her legal expenses while she pursued the matter in the British courts. With compound interest, the total value of the estate was more than $10 billion. She promised a return of 500 to 1 or even 1,000 to 1, making a Drake investment sound too good to be true. But, on the other hand... 
possibly too good to miss. Back to me. To give those of you who may be numbed to the value of even a billion dollars in today's world, adjusting only for inflation since 1920, no real return above inflation, 10 billion then would be roughly 140 billion now. So this was not chump change. Also, it was not even remotely real. Sudi Whitaker's claim would seem laughable to those of us bombarded with pleas for help from Nigerian princes. But in the crazy boom years of the 1920s, the good burgers of many a Midwestern town were receptive to her pitch. Millions had actually been made by the most dubious means, Florida land speculation, for example. And Wall Street during those go-go years was little better. As those few of you who are not trained securities lawyers may not know, the first federal regulation of the securities markets did not come until the Securities Act of 1933, well after the crash of 29. One of Widow Whitaker's marks was a woman named Emma Hartzell, Oscar's mother. She had brought Oscar Merrill Hartzell into this world on January 6, 1876, on a 20-acre farm in rural Illinois. Oscar worked the farm and dropped out of school to pursue his dreams in 1891, when he was 15. At age 19, he married the daughter of a prosperous local farmer and bought 200 acres to farm. Four years later, he flipped that into enough proceeds to buy a 1,000 acres of farmland in Madison County, Iowa, home of the famous bridges and treacly romances, where he built up a herd of cattle and a substantial drove of hogs. Parenthetical, drove is a collective noun for hogs, which I only just learned and resolved to use at the earliest opportunity. Forgive me, now you know too. In 1905, Hartzell's father died in a hunting accident, and Oscar, now almost 30, plunged the insurance proceeds into 16,000 acres in Texas with a plan to go into the cattle game at a huge scale. Unfortunately, the cattle croaked of some fell disease known as the Texas itch, which seems to have been a protozoan infection spread by a certain species of tick. If this wasn't bad enough, Hartzell ran unsuccessfully for sheriff in Polk County, Iowa. That would be where Des Moines is, for those of you who are not students of Hawkeye State Geography. And by 1915, when Sudie Whitaker came knocking on his mother's door, the almost 40-year-old Oscar Hartzell was bankrupt and all but ruined. Whitaker's big mistake was that she took pity on Emma Hartzell's loser son and offered him a job. Maybe she was impressed by his capacity for big dreaming and risk-taking. Oscar loved the story of Sir Francis Drake, and candidly, who doesn't? A farmer's son who, through daring do and hard work, rose to the top of the English world, and perhaps saw a bit of himself in Drake. Hartzell, not yet aware of the con, asked to take his salary and a share of the proceeds. In the summer of 1915, Whitaker collected more than $65,000 in Des Moines, more than $900,000 in today's money, including from a judge, a county clerk, and, quote, leading society women, in Rayner's description, whatever that might have been in Des Moines in 1915. But one of her 
Investors, William Astran began to smell a rat and swore out a complaint. Susie Whitaker was indicted before a grand jury and tossed in the clink. Her lawyer, a shady character from Chicago named Milo Lewis, secured a release. And before she could be brought to trial in the spring of 1916, Lewis, Whitaker, one of her sons, and Oscar Hartzell left for England. Whitaker and Lewis thought a Hartzell was their employee. At some point, sick of being bossed around, Hartzell began to scheme. He waited six long years while Lewis, now on top, and Whitaker worked their con through the true believer agents in the Midwest. His wife, Daisy, still back in Iowa, divorced him on the fairly reasonable grounds of desertion. But 1922, Oscar Hartzell saw his moment to take over. The Chicago Bar Association had been trying to disbar Mila Lewis for some time, and that year the case finally came before the Supreme Court of Illinois. The Bar Association had leveled two charges against Lewis, that he was inducing people to invest in the bogus estate of Sir Francis Drake, and that he had violated Illinois marriage law by remarrying five months, rather than the required six, after divorcing his first wife. The lead investigator couldn't prove that the Drake business was a fraud. That required proving a negative in a world where most of the witnesses and evidence was thousands of miles and a sea voyage away. So the court disbarred Lewis for having been a scoundrel. It was the ideal result for Hartzell. Milo is now officially an untrustworthy weasel, but the Drake estate game had survived a challenge in court. He made his move. He began writing letters to the investors in Iowa. Now back to Rayner, quote, In 1922, Hartzell plied his pen in the visitor's writing room at the London offices of the Chicago Daily News, seeking to convince the Drake investors in America that he was now in charge. His blunt cattleman's tone was an asset. He was enraged and full of conviction. Remember, I have been running with a very bad crowd, he wrote to John Owen, an English emigre who worked as an insurance adjuster in Des Moines, asking Owen to read this letter and future ones at secret gatherings of the Drakers, before handing them to Hartzell's mother for safekeeping. In time, these letters came to be regarded as totems of wisdom, almost as sacred texts. I have been traveling with the lowest down, most unprincipled crooks on earth, Hartzell wrote in one letter. An automobile couldn't haul the criminal records connected with that outfit. Milo Lewis, he alleged, had fathered a child with a blacksmith's daughter. And there was more. You will not believe it, but there is another woman that has six children by him. Hell's just a-poppin'. The records in the end will show a score of illegitimate children that belong to Lewis. Back to me. More substantively, Hartzell accused Whitaker and Lewis of perjury, forgery, bribery, and fraud. For a time, the investors in Iowa and environs were confused. Lewis and Whitaker brought suit against Hartzell for libel. This was a mistake, Rayner writes, because Hartzell enjoyed litigation and was good at it. He hired a crack London barrister and showed up in court with a certified copy of Lewis's disbarment proceedings, newspaper clippings of Sudie Whitaker's indictment in 1915, and, this is rich, the phony Drake estate share certificates they'd given him as compensation. 
easy as it usually is for plaintiffs to win libel cases in Britain. Hartzell is defendant won in this case. He now had a British court ruling that said more or less that he'd been telling the truth about his erstwhile partners. Hartzell could not be content merely to push Sudi and Milo aside. The original scam had turned on the supposed claim of Sudi's cousin George Drake. He could not very well just step into her shoes. Hartzell needed a new story, so he made one up and wrote it in a letter to an old friend and trusted doctor back in Iowa, Charles Cochran. Hartzell had befriended a nun, he wrote, who had told him about a secret suppressed will of Francis Drake in the attic in a church in Devon. He said he'd gone into the church late at night, climbed into the belfry, and discovered the document under inches of dust. Furthermore, he'd discovered that Sir Francis had had a son after all, a rightful heir, and that the lineage ran without interruption to one Colonel Drexel Drake, still living in London. Drexel Drake had assigned his interest in the Drake estate to Hartzell. Why'd he done this? Because the good Colonel's beloved niece, one Lady Curzon, had fallen in love with Oscar and they were to be married. All of this had been certified by something called the Crown Commission. Now all Hartzell needed was the resources to recover this vast fortune, which had been dispersed through the British economy. And it truly was vast. Hartzell did the same math that John Maynard Keynes would do eight years later and turned it into a story. Quoting Hartzell, Figure up all the land in Missouri, Kansas, and Iowa at an average of $125 an acre. And all of the stocks and all of the bank deposits, all of the railroads and cities in those three states, and add them together and the combined amount would not be as large as the Sir Francis Drake estate here in England, of which I am the sole owner, and to which I hold the sole title, which the British Parliament is now conveying to me in cash, and which I'm going to bring to America to distribute among the men and women who had advanced the money with which to carry on the fight to win the estate. When I get this money, and I expect to get it in the summer, I could buy the three states of Missouri, Kansas, and Iowa, every foot of land and every dollar's worth of property in them, and put a fence around the whole lot, and then have more gold left over than all of you ever dreamed of. Back to me. Of course, virtually every word in the 18-page letter to Cochrane was unadulterated fantasy. There was no new will. No proof that Francis Drake ever had a son. No Colonel Drexel Drake. No Lady Curzon. And definitely no Crown Commission charged with sorting out matters of lineage. But in a world where alleged facts were difficult to verify, nobody could Google around and wonder why the Crown Commission did not exist on the Internet, there would be plenty of people who genuinely believed there were. On Hartzell's say-so, he had verifiably won his libel case. The Drake scam was born again, this time with no connection to Sudie Whitaker and Milo Lewis. At some point fairly soon after his correspondence with Dr. Cochran, Hartzell returned to Iowa. There he found that enthusiasm for the Drake estate speculation had, if anything, increased. After all, if he'd been in a fight with Whitaker and Lewis, it must have been for a reason. There must be a there there. 
In Iowa, Hartzell recruited true believers to be his agents, raising the money he needed to keep up the legal battle in Britain. Hartzell said that he needed at least $2,500 every week, equivalent today to thirty-five grand per week. Further, he established what he thought was a sound legal defense. Rather than selling shares in the estate, he asked only for donations. The donors would have to trust him to make good when he got control of the Drake estate, now compounded in value over 330 years. Then he went back to London. The money rolled in. Hartzell used that money to remake himself, at least superficially. He took elocution lessons and learned to dance. He wore spats and sometimes a monocle. He bought his suits on Seville Row and dined at the Savoy Hotel. A Scotland Yard detective named George Page followed him around for a few months and wrote what Rayner calls a rueful account of Hartzell's day. Quote, I kept observation on the movements of Hartzell and found them to be monotonously regular. Hartzell left his flat every morning at about 10.20. He invariably purchased four cigars at the tobacconists at Knightsbridge Station. He traveled by underground from Knightsbridge to Piccadilly and sometimes took a cab for the short distance from the station to the American Express offices. He would then go straight to the library. He usually remained at the American Express office until about 12 noon. On a number of occasions, I went into the library and saw Hartzell reading cablegrams and sometimes writing on cable forms. I've also seen him draw large sums of money from the cashier. From the American Express, Hartzell invariably went to the Carlton Hotel lounge and consumed expensive drinks. He always left the Carlton about 1 p.m., had lunch in a high-class restaurant, and arrived home about 3.30. He would reappear about 6.30 or 7 p.m. in evening dress and would dine at the Berkeley or Savoy Hotel. I've seen him treated with the greatest deference by the hall porters at both these establishments and also at the Kit Kat restaurant, sometimes accompanied by one or more splendidly dressed women. Back to me, Hartzell was something of a hound dog. Years later, in an interview with a prison psychiatrist, he recounted that he would often sleep with these women, always using in his words, and I quote, a conundrum. Apparently, conundrums aren't foolproof in that he managed to impregnate one Eunice Collis, the daughter of the manager of his tobacconist. For the rest of the 1920s, Hartzell kept up this charade. He ran his con by correspondence from the American Express office library, and it was sustained by his agents, who were true believers and not the least bit understanding that they were abetting a fraud. At one point, his lead agent did smell a rat and went to London to confront Hartzell. She went back to Iowa and denounced him. He responded by accusing her of embezzling money from him and again kept it all going. During the Roaring Twenties, Hartzell was forever at risk of disappointing his marks. After all, the recovery of the Drake estate was always just around the corner. He maintained their support and recruited new ones by constantly explaining away each setback, all in writing from London. His audacity was extraordinary. The United States Court of Appeals for the Eighth Circuit would eventually affirm his conviction for mail fraud. 
Its opinion hilariously sets out the litany of Hartzell's extravagant claims as charged by prosecutors. Here are those you have not already heard. Quote, 7. That the persons who contributed money to assist him in meeting the expenses would be repaid on the basis of at least $1,000 for every dollar contributed. 8. That he was a British subject and would soon receive a title. 9. That Sir Francis Drake died leaving a son, and at the death of Sir Francis Drake, his estate was fraudulently administered by a brother of Sir Francis Drake. 11. That the genealogy of Drake was made final in August 1923 by the Lords and Kings Commission. 13. That since August, after the baronetcy was established, he was getting all details ready to take possession of everything that followed the title under the law of today. 14. That this law was passed 30 or 40 years ago and gave to the rightful heir his right to transfer all property and everything that followed the title. 15. That the contributors could see that everything which belonged to Sir Francis Drake at his death would have to be accounted for by the Crown and subsequently turned over to the defendant. 16. That the genealogy had been presented to the Crown Commission, which was the highest power in the British Empire and could not be attacked by the courts. 17. That since the death of Drake, there had always been a dispute which accounted for the Crown's control and supervision of everything that belonged to the estate of Sir Francis Drake. 18. That the Crown confiscated the whole thing from the parties in possession and turned it over to the rightful heir in the baronetcy. 19. That it was said by people in high finance that the amount of the estate was considerably over the combined debt of Great Britain to the United States of America and the, all the other countries' indebtedness to Great Britain, and that it amounted to $22.5 billion. 22. That every tree, load of wood, and timber that had been cut off the land since the death of Drake was accounted for as well as the accumulation of monies and money from rock quarries, brickyards, pottery, clay, minerals, ores, fishing rights, income from railroad lands, and all rents from properties that have been accumulated. 23. That this money had been working for over 300 years, both in the ecclesiastical and government departments. 25. That the original documents had been sealed and locked away in the archives and that five copies were in the hands of the people who should have them. 26. That all monies, properties, lands, title, deeds, heirlooms, and personal effects of the late Sir Francis Drake and his heirs were to be handed over to defendant with the utmost possible speed. 27. That defendant had been recognized by King George but that he had not gone through the formality of recognition. The defendant was the only real Sir Francis Drake, and that everything belonged to him, and his claim had been okayed by the Crown. 31. That the day of the finish, he would send a copy of the London Gazette, the only official government paper printed in London, which would tell the contributors of defendant's name being changed on deed poll to Francis Drake, and that therefore... He would be raised to the peerage, the crests for which had already been made. Back to me. 
In October 1929, the stock market crashed. But the good people of the upper Midwest did not own a lot of stocks. Their distrust of Wall Street had been confirmed. And then John Maynard Keynes wrote his famous essay, quoted at the beginning of this episode, seeming to affirm the logic of Hartzell's claims. Their belief was such that entire towns divided passionately over the validity of the Drake estate and the honesty of Hartzell. Eventually, at least 70,000 people donated to Hartzell. The State Department estimated as many as 200,000. In all these years, there are only two known instances of Hartzell acknowledging that his Drake estate operation was a grift. The first was in the early 1920s, when he'd briefly returned to Iowa. On that trip, he tried to recruit his siblings to work with him. A brother walked out of the meeting, saying that if they did, they'd all end up in jail. The second time was a drunken confession to an alleged Texas oil man in 1930, which is roughly when prison psychiatrists believe Hartzell began to lose his marbles. By 1930, Hartzell began drinking more and got in a serious car accident. He was heard to brag to one of his dates that he had a ship laden with gold anchored in the Thames. And he began seeing a psychic who went by the name of Mrs. St. John Montague. A few days later, he found himself chatting with an apparent Texas oil man about the good old days when he owned thousands of acres in the panhandle. The Texan, who was in fact a British P.I. hired by Mrs. St. John Montague, confessed that his side of the oil business was not entirely on the up and up, that he was in fact a con man. The evening wore on. The drinking continued in Hartzell's flat, and eventually he returned the oil man's trust by confessing that the Drake estate was also a racket. The private investigator reported the long conversation of Mrs. St. John Montague, Apparently, he would go to the toilet and scribble notes as the evening wore on to have an accurate recollection. She used all that detail to impress Hartzell with her surprising knowledge of him and his operation, fleecing him for thousands of pounds. The con man had been conned. As successful as the con was in Iowa and Minnesota, there were always skeptics. Over the years, so many complaints came into the Better Business Bureau and Chamber of Commerce that the State Department's file on Hartzell would be more than a foot thick. In 1928, a postal inspector in St. Louis named John Sparks became interested in the Drake scam. His job was to investigate crimes perpetrated by use of the mails, and the widely distributed work-from-home Drake scam seemed like a big case. Sparks moved his family to Sioux City, Iowa, intending to stay there until he'd figure the thing out. Sparks traveled all over Iowa, painstakingly building a case against Hartzell. His biggest obstacle was that Hartzell's agents, the people who recruited donations and sent them on to London, genuinely thought Hartzell was on the up and up. Charles Cochran had died, and his successor was a farmer named Amos Hartsock. Now to Rayner, quote, Sparks conducted his interview as Hartsock plowed a cornfield. Hartsock's speech was homespun, but he was happy to admit using the mails to solicit and receive money. 
He and others had been wiring large sums to Hartzell since 1922, totaling between $700,000 and $800,000, he thought. Amos Hartzog had nothing to hide, and Sparks was puzzled. Wasn't he afraid that the post office was about to come down on him? No, because the deal's on the level, Hartzog said. He asked if Sparks thought Hartzell was a fraud. When Sparks said he knew Hartzell was a fraud, Hartzog took off his hat and wiped the sweat out of his eyes. The whole thing's as safe as government bonds, he said. Back to me. By late 1932, the post office was ready to charge Hartzell, and the State Department prevailed on the British to interview him and then arrest him and deport him. He arrived in New York Harbor on February 16, 1933, and John Sparks took a motorboat out to his ship to meet him. Hartzell was indicted in federal court in Sioux City on 15 counts of fraudulent misuse of the mails. The case for the prosecution argued in a courtroom packed with interested citizens. Turned out to be more difficult than you might imagine. The cult of Hartzell was durable. The prosecution called at least 20 of the donators. Not one of them would say a bad word about Hartzell. None said they wanted their money back when the government's lawyer pressed them. When asked if they believed they were about to be millionaires, they said they did. The prosecution did have two witnesses. One was the British private eye who'd posed, apparently successfully, as a Texan. He testified to Hartzell's drunken confession, which was damning. The crucial witness for the prosecution, however, was a London barrister named Charles Challen, who'd been called to testify as an expert on English law. Now let's go to Rayner's account of his testimony, quote... Challen had lost an arm fighting in the First World War and created sympathy on the stand, where his delivery was droll and superior. Challen gave a dazzling performance, explaining that there never had been any such tribunal as the Lord and King's Commission. It was just a product of Hartzell's imagination. Even more damaging was Challen's statement that in England, a statute of limitations restricted an heir's right of recovery to 12 years at the most. There never could have been a claim to Drake's long-lost fortune, even if it had existed, which it didn't. With dramatic aplomb, Challen waved a copy of what may have been the oldest document ever presented— in an American court, the correctly sealed and executed last will and testament of Sir Francis Drake. There was no mention of a son, legitimate or otherwise. The dreams of opulence of countless Midwesterners appeared to vanish into the air. Hartzell, who hadn't taken the stand to testify, was found guilty on all counts and sentenced to ten years in Leavenworth. Back to me. Remarkably, donations to support Hartzell not only came rolling in after his arrest, they continued after his conviction. Hartzell was let out on bail pending the appeal, and even as he climbed ever deeper into his bottle, he roused himself to lead huge rallies of his supporters, which felt like religious revival meetings, so strong was their fervor. The convicted con man stood up in front of his adoring faithful, and continued to spin his fabulous stories. Much to the disbelief of those not so easily taken in by a flimflam artist, 
The crowd still loved him. Hartzell's conviction was upheld by the 11th Circuit on August 16, 1934, and Hartzell went off to Leavenworth. And still the donations came in, now collected by former Hartzell agent Delmar Short in Chicago, who presumably kept the money. On April 9, 1935, detectives raided the Drake headquarters in the Windy City and seized documents that eventually led to the indictment of 41 people. Hartzell was brought from Leavenworth for another trial and was convicted a second time, along with some of the 41. The Drake swindle, which had now been around in one form or another for more than 40 years, finally faded away. No doubt there were more than a few tense marital moments in the aftermath. Hartzell's sentence was deferred pending psychiatric evaluation. The examining physician was Dr. Harry M. Hoffman, the director of the Behavioral Clinic of the Criminal Court of Cook County, Illinois. Dr. Hoffman found Hartzell to be perfectly normal in many respects. He was fully cognizant of time and place, and he knew the name of the president, the governor of Illinois, and the mayor of Chicago. Hartzell denied ever hearing strange voices talking to him or having a special mission in life. Hartzell did what he did, he said, as a cold-blooded business proposition. Then it got weird. Back to Rayner, quote, Hartzell wasn't worried about being in jail. On the contrary, he was more concerned about being released, for he feared that he would be killed by the financial interests. After all, he was about to be the richest person who ever lived or walked the earth. The world would not begin to come out of the Depression until the Drake money was handed over to him at which time the United States would no longer be a democracy but would be a part of Great Britain again, like Canada, and he would be the dominant figure in this new setup. He would be able to start and stop wars because of his great financial power. He'd be sure, for instance, to make Mussolini stop the war in Ethiopia. Soon he would be the unknown hand, the silent man behind the scenes of power. He would be top dog. You'll never have another globetrotter like Drake was, he told Hoffman. I'm Sir Francis Drake now. Adjudged insane, Oscar Hartzell was transferred from Leavenworth to the Medical Center for Federal Prisoners in Springfield, Missouri. He died there on August 27, 1943. Back to me. Amusing as this story is, after the passage of a century, at least for those of us with hearts of stone, it is not obvious to me that ordinary people are either more or less likely to believe in charlatans today than they were a hundred years ago, neither more nor less. I take a certain comfort in that. The sources for this episode are a little bit tough to get. The transcript of the opinion delivered in Hartzell's appeal in the case Hartzell v. United States is easy enough to find, but Richard Rayner's article from The New Yorker in 2002 is only available on PDF and then only if you subscribe. Rayner did write an entire book on the fraud, Drake's Fortune, the fabulous true story of the world's greatest confidence artist, which I have not read, but which surely is full of fun stuff for those of you who want to go deeper. I'll put a link in the show notes so you can go buy it if you're so inclined. Thank you again for listening to the History of the Americans podcast. Your emails have been very encouraging. Please keep them coming. 
You can reach me with questions, corrections, eruptions of indignation, or pats on the back on the contact page for the website, thehistoryoftheamericans.com, or by email at thehistoryoftheamericans at gmail.com. And please do me the great favor of giving the podcast a five-star rating on Apple and following me on X and the Facebook page for the podcast. Until next time.